Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you here. I want to start with a word of apology. Um, if you were looking for a worship guide and couldn't find one today, that was my fault. Um, I printed today 35 copies of the sermon rather than 35 copies of the worship guide. So <laughs> realized it about five minutes before we walked out the door. So we ended up printing about 10 of them. And uh, hopefully those of you who have it on your phone could, could see it on your phone. But apologies for that today. It's really good to see all of you here. Um, we got a number of visitors, some for the first time. Thank you for being here. It's good to see some of you I haven't seen in a minute um, as well. It's good to be together and uh, to open up God's word together and read from it. Uh, this past month, we've been reading through the books of uh, the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus. And so uh, what I'd like to do today is just to kind of do what is going to amount to be like a brief survey of some of the themes that Titus and Timothy received from Paul. Um, and we're going we're gonna, to, the way we're going to do this is, is by looking at a phrase that is only used in Timothy and Titus uh, five times in these letters. Uh, the phrase that came up in, in the passage that was just read in Titus chapter 3, I believe it was verse 8. Um, this is a trustworthy saying, or this is a faithful saying, a trustworthy statement. Um, five times in the letters of Timothy and Titus, Paul uses this phrase um, to speak about something uh, that is important for, his, for, for those who are listening to him to hear. Uh, and, and I would argue and suggest that, that each of these trustworthy statements in Timothy and Titus serve as a window through which we see the true nature of the gospel. So what we're going to do today is just explore these uh, five statements um, in hopes that they will remind us of what it is that we are to be striving for as disciples of Christ and why. Um, we're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The first of these statements was uh, emphasized a lot a couple of weeks ago, so we won't spend a lot of time there. But 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 is where that first statement, uh, first statement is. So go ahead and turn your Bible there. Um, and while you're turning there, let me just say a couple other words about um, these letters. Uh, Paul's writing both to Timothy and Titus, two young men in the faith, trying to train them and teach them and encourage them and equip them as they work to equip others in the service of the Lord uh, and particularly other churches that they are serving uh, in, in, in the Lord's work. Um, a lot of what Paul will say in these letters, he calls uh, reminders, or he'll say to them, remind the people of these things that I've already told you or taught you before. Um, and I thought it would be helpful just for a moment to, for us to be reminded about the importance of reminders. Um, I don't know about you, but I remember growing up uh, as in church uh, as I started to grow and mature and listen a little bit better to the teachings that were given, uh, one of the things that used to really bother me uh, when I was young was when people would teach or preach, uh, and it was something that I had heard before. Uh, I don't know why that bothered me so much. It was like, well, t tell me something new. Teach me something that's different than what I already know. Give me some sort of new revelation, some sort of new truth. That was the way I thought uh, about what was a good teaching that was given. Um, as I've grown a little bit more older and a little bit more mature, I've, I've come to recognize and appreciate the value of reminders. Uh, this first happened for me when I realized that Peter's in his second letter said, basically, all I'm doing is I'm trying to stir you up by way of reminder. 
And I realized, well, if the apostles could write entire letters just giving reminders to people of what they have already been taught, then maybe what I need is not something new, but simply to be reminded of what I've already been taught. And, I, and actually, I would argue that uh, the purpose of a reminder is to renew the mind. The Bible says that that's actually how transformation happens in the life of Christians. So reminders play an important role in us becoming like Christ, in us becoming what God has created us to be. I've come to realize that most of my problems in life, maybe not all of them, but most of my problems in life have come from my stumbling, my sin, my uselessness, my fruitlessness, are caused not by, a, not by ignorance, but by forgetfulness of things that I have already been taught. Uh, I don't know if that's true for you, but I would argue that memory is the key to motivation. And that's why Peter says that I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder in 2 Peter chapter 1. What we need often is not to be taught something new, but to be reminded of the things that we've already been told that are true. And so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, I want us to learn as a congregation to be content with that, to, be, to learn to be content with reminding people about truth and being given reminders about truth. Uh, for those of you who minister through teaching and preaching, avoid an aspiration uh, for originality. It's tempting to want to get up and say something new. Um, but as the old guys used to say, if it's new, it ain't true. And if it's true, it ain't new, right? Um, most of what you're ever going to hear me say, if it's valuable, is not originally for me. Uh, I could stand up here and just quote lots of different people all the time. Most importantly, just quote scripture. If people are giving things that are true, then it's not as if they are new. So be content with that. Uh, if apostles could write letters simply to remind their readers of what they already knew, then we should be content with coming together and hearing reminders of what we've already been taught is true. Um, so let me say a word, though, about these trustworthy statements. Uh, this core phrase that's used, this is a trustworthy statement or this is a faithful saying. Um, it's used five times, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 9, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 11, and in Titus 3 and verse 8. Um, now, this phrase is expanded a little bit in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, where he says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And again, in chapter 4 and verse 9. But uh, what, what is Paul doing? Why does, he, why does he do this? That's kind of a puzzle and a mystery. Why it is in the middle of this teaching does he pause and say this is a trustworthy statement? Um, and some have pointed out that it seems to be a way uh, in which Paul is authenticating and differentiating the gospel that he's preaching from what many other people would be preaching. There were many false gospels that had gone out in the world, many other teachings. This is a way of Paul drawing their minds and reminding them that what he is saying is true. And I think in part, Paul does this to assert his authority as an apostle. It's not because he's trying to draw people to himself, but it's, it's because he's trying to warn people that there are other people out there who are going to teach things different than what Jesus handed down to his apostles. And so he's articulating the gospel while asserting his authority and its authenticity. At the same time, by so doing this, he would be alienating those people who would come along and teach something different. Those people who would bring a different message. It, it, it's a, the intent of this is, is to help people to recognize what is actually trustworthy versus the things that are not. 
um, those messages and teachings that are untrustworthy. And this phrase that, that deserves full acceptance emphasizes the need for those of us who are hearing these words from God that are true and faithful to then hear the word and accept it and respond appropriately. And so here's the goal of today. I'm going to share these uh, messages that hopefully you've all already been reading as we've read the letters of Timothy and Titus uh, together over the past month. I'm going to share again. We're going to read each of these statements um, in their context. But then I'm just going to make a few comments and try to encourage each of us to respond accordingly to the messages that, that are given. So let's start again in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why did Jesus come into the world? Sometimes people ask that question. Uh, what do you, how do you answer that? If Jesus was, in, it was God and Jesus was in heaven, why did he leave? Why did Jesus come into the world? Paul answers that question with a simple statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The purpose for Christ's coming, the king of the universe coming down from heaven to earth, the purpose of Christ's coming was to save sinners. I want you also to note something here in this text that Jesus in coming here and coming down to save sinners demonstrates his patience. In fact, the way he says it, he demonstrates his perfect patience. And in fact, we learned something here about God's patience. We've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit, patience, this, uh, this year. Uh, we learned something about God's patience by Christ Jesus coming into the world. That is that patience is not just passive, but also active. Do you see that? God wasn't just long-suffering as he sat up on the throne in heaven. And he just waited and waited and waited. It is true that God is waiting patiently for all to come to repentance. Um, but God wasn't just sitting up on the throne passively waiting for others to come to repentance. God acted out of his patience to come down and to enter into the mess that we had created so that he could help us out of our sin. And I want you to think about this um, I think this is instructive for us as we think about our patience. Jesus' perfect patience was displayed in Paul as a pattern for those who would believe. And I think that goes two ways. It goes, it go, first of all, it's, it, it, it works in this way. Jesus' perfect patience with Paul, who he says is the foremost of sinners, should be an example to us or a demonstration to us 
that God will be patient with us. Thank God that he is a patient God. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today and probably many of you wouldn't be here either. Um, many of us have tested God time and time again. We have tried him. We have stumbled. We have fallen. We have sinned. Sometimes deliberately rebelled against God. And yet we're still here. Praise God for his perfect patience. When God saved Paul, this was a demonstration of perfect patience. This is how long God will suffer, how long God will persevere in, in, in trying to goad us. Do you remember the, uh, Jesus saying that to Paul on the road? Why, how, why do you kick against the goad? How long are you going to keep kicking against the goad? How long God will continue to suffer as he, ten, as he tries to point us back towards him? Paul is an example of Jesus Christ's perfect patience. Now, let me suggest another thing here, though, about this. Not only is Paul an example in that God will be perfectly patient towards us, Paul is also an example for us of what God's perfect patience ought to produce in us. And I want you to think about this. If this is the kind of patience that God has had towards us, not just a passive patience where he suffered a long time, but it was that and more. He entered into that suffering so that he could save us out of the mess and the suffering that we had got ourselves in. If it's true that God would enter into our sorrow and our sin and our struggle and our stumbling and send Jesus to save us out of it, then it also is true that that should change the way I demonstrate patience towards other people, right? The same patience that God has shown me ought to be produced in me towards others. And Paul is a living example for us that God can take unfaithful people and make them into faithful servants. God can take people who are untrustworthy and turn them into trustworthy. And one of the things that as a practical demonstration or a practical manifestation of this in, in our assembly, I want to encourage you. Uh, I want to encourage you to think about this. Part of learning to be like Christ is learning to see people not for who they are, but for who they can become through the power and grace of God. We need to learn to see people not just for who they are, but for who they can become through the power and grace of God. May God's perfect patience that he has shown us then change us and transform us to be perfectly patient towards others. Think about this. Appreciating Christ's patience toward me is critical to my motivation to minister towards others in need of patience. And there are. The more we get to know each other, the more we get to realize how much, how much we are all in need of patience. If we're going to continue to serve and to minister, then we've got to be reminding ourselves regularly of just how patient Christ has been with us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as I read this text, I ought not say, oh yeah, Paul was such a bad guy. He was the foremost of all of them. I ought to read this text and say, of which I am the foremost of all. And if God could save me, then what is it that I'm not willing to give up in order to work to save others? All right, so the first of the trustworthy statements is revealing the gospel. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Skip over to chapter 3, and in verse 1, we're going to come back to chapter 2 in later studies of the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, but skip over to chapter 3, and let's read verse 1 down through verse 7. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. 
the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So I, this is kind of a puzzling one. Uh, the trustworthy statement here, if any man desires, aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Why would Paul even need to say that? Of course, it's a good work to shepherd, right? Uh, well, actually, in just a couple chapters back, in chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul was critical of those who want to be teachers of the law. Um, and I think perhaps, based on things like that kind of criticism that Paul might have given, some people might have gotten the idea, well, it's a wrong, it's, it's wrong to even desire to be a, a servant leader in the church of God. Uh, or perhaps maybe there were some faithful servant leaders in the church whose leadership had come under attack by members who were following these other people who wanted to be teachers of the law. Um, I think Paul, though, here makes an important point. The aspiration to become an overseer is, in fact, a good thing if it is accompanied by spiritual maturity and a desire to become like Christ. If you're going to look at the qualities that are mentioned here that are given for what an overseer should be, really, one way to summarize all, these, all of these qualities, with the exception being husband of one wife, would be that these are the qualities that, 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 ought, to, uh, that ought to demonstrate the character of Christ. These are the qualities that look like Jesus. And I want us to think about this. While, while it is, in fact, the Holy Spirit who makes an overseer, according to Acts chapter 20, the desire must also come from within to do this good work. And God designed his church to be led by shepherds because overseers of this quality protect the church from things like fruitless discussions and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, Paul will talk about in 1 Timothy 1, from rebellious men and empty talkers and deceivers. Uh, and, 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 and God designed his church to be led by shepherds because overseers of this quality also nourish the church with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. I want to say this. It's the goal of this church, and we say this often, that we would one day have qualified men who would serve as overseers or pastors and elders. And though we have not yet reached this goal, we continue to work toward it. How do we do that? Well, the way we work toward it is through teaching, reminding, instructing, encouraging, equipping one another and training one another in godliness. I want to make a specific application here. Uh, there's an extensive emphasis throughout these three letters on teaching, reminding, and entrusting faithful men with these faithful words. Over and over and over again, that idea is stressed. Entrust what I'm telling you to faithful men who will pass it on. Now, actually, it's not just men. The church is strengthened as the older, mature members teach, remind, and entrust the younger so that they may become faithful ministers of the Lord. Look with me real quick just to emphasize this to Titus chapter 2. 
Titus chapter 2, and I want you to read it with me in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. After saying in verse 2 that older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance, in verse 3 says older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. All right, now here's the point I want us to make. In the Bible, there is a command for older to teach and train the younger. All right, do you hear that? This is a command given for older to teach the younger. Now, we are a relatively young church um, with a relatively young group of members. Not all of us. Uh, would maybe describe ourselves as young in the faith, but there are many here who are. So what does this mean for us as we seek to grow to the point where we have qualified and faithful shepherds leading and guiding this church? Um, well, I, here's a couple of things. First of all, older women have a responsibility and are specifically commanded to live godly lives, not just for their own relationship with God and their own salvation, but also they are commanded to teach what is good and to encourage the younger women. The same instruction, of course, would apply to older men who are encouraged to teach and to entrust to faithful men, often younger men, the things that they have been taught. And I want to I want to give us a, an encouragement along these lines. In a church as young as this one, there is a desperate need for every one of us to find and identify members who are younger than us in the faith and to love them and to encourage them and to instruct them on how to walk in the way of the Lord. The way we do that first is through our example. We live godly lives. We live righteous lives. We deny self. We put away sin and we choose to follow God. And it starts with me and my character and my example. But I want to suggest this. It doesn't end there. And in fact, this text reminds us that, that, that we are called to instruct one another, to encourage one another, to teach and to train one another. The nice thing about a group like this is we got so many kids that in this assembly, everybody has somebody younger than them. Almost everybody has somebody in our midst who's younger than them in the faith or in life that you have something to offer in encouragement and in teaching and instruction. And I want to ask you, have you thought about who in this church can I be equipping? Can I be encouraging? Can I be instructing to learn how to be pure, how to submit, how to have self-control, how to be sound in faith, how to be sound in love, how to persevere through trials? Who in this church could I help and could I encourage and could I train? That's how the church is built up. And if this church wants to one day have healthy strong leaders. It begins with men and women who are committed to godliness and who are taught and trained in godliness. The good work of overseeing is a good thing to aspire to, but every member of the church is involved in the process of growing up faithful men who will serve as overseers of the church. Look with me at the next one in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
The third of the trustworthy statements comes in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine which you've been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Well, just as exercise and eating are critical to the life of an, uh, of an athlete and the work of an athlete, even more so, nourishment and discipline are essential for the minister of God. To be a good minister, to be a good servant of the Lord and of his people, you must remain a good student first of God's word and a good follower of the good teaching that we are learning from him. And I would argue this behind the public ministry of every servant of God is the discipline of private study of the word of God. We will learn to serve well when we are learning well God's word and we are applying it first to our own lives and hearts. There are many things in this world that you may discipline yourself in. There are many things that you may apply your diligence to, to, uh, to work on your discipline in, but none compares in value to disciplining yourself for godliness. Since the blessing of godliness is not just for this life, but also for the life to come. So I want you to think about this. How are you doing at disciplining yourself in godliness? Uh, throughout the letters to Timothy and Titus, Paul will persistently plead with Timothy and with Titus, and he will plead with them to avoid fruitless entanglements that are unprofitable, and that are worthless. And I want to ask you, do you have fruitless entanglements in your life right now? Things that you're entangled in, caught up in, exercises you're doing that are actually unproductive and fruitless in the end. Paul will even warn, as we read in Titus chapter 3, will warn them to reject relationships with people who cause strife and division and lead you into unfruitfulness. He even warns you to reject people because they're divisive uh, or to not spend time with them. See, Paul is concerned about disciplining yourself for godliness. All other, God, all other discipline may provide some small profit, but only godliness provides a blessing for now and for the life to come. There's no shortcut to, uh, to spiritual growth. You can't cut corners. You can't cheat your way into, uh, into uh, becoming strong, a strong disciple of Jesus. God sees everything. He knows everywhere. And he knows the process that he's created for us to become faithful disciples. There are no shortcuts. Growth comes through sustained, disciplined meditation on the word of God and a practical application of what you're learning to your lifestyle. And I'll just add to this, um, keeping our hope fixed on God, the living God who is the Savior of all, is what's going to motivate us to keep exercising and nourishing ourselves unto godliness. 
You see, one of the reasons why we end up disciplining ourselves in areas that end up providing very little profit in the end, one of the reasons why we do that is because our hope is fixed on other things. Because my hope is set on something, I focus entirely on this. But if my hope is fixed on the living God, then the focus of my discipline is going to be applied to godliness, becoming like God in every way. So let me give some, uh, some practical exhortations here. Number one, uh, think about your nourishment. Think about how you're nourishing yourself right now. If you're not feeding your body right, eventually you will suffer for it. Uh, some of us have learned that the hard way. Um, if you're not feeding your mind right, it's also true that your spirit will suffer for it. And don't misunderstand this text. Uh, he's not saying here, well, don't worry about your body, only about your spirit. Don't worry about disciplining your body. Uh, actually, God, we are blessed by God to be stewards of our bodies, and we ought to take good care of them. Um, if I'm a glutton when it comes to my body, don't think that it's, that don't, don't it's going to be easy for me to discipline my spirit either. If I can't learn self-control in simple areas, I'm not going to learn it in more complex and difficult ones. But here's the point. If disciplining my body is so important that you see us in the gym, some of us get up early in the morning to, to work. I say us. I'm not talking about me here. <laughs> but if some of us are working hard to discipline our bodies, and we do work hard at various things that we discipline ourselves with that are of temporal nature, how much more ought we to be disciplining our mind, our spirit, and our soul? How much more ought we be giving effort to disciplining ourselves? Uh, let me give a suggestion here as it relates to nourishment. Avoid spiritual junk food. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Avoid spiritual junk food. You know, the stuff that will keep you busy and keep you munching, but actually doesn't end up making you stronger or healthier at all. You know, there are foods like that. We eat uh, chips and cookies and that kind of stuff. Uh, hopefully not too much of that at the, uh, at the gathering this afternoon. But, uh, you know, the kind of stuff that we like to munch on, but doesn't actually make us strong and healthy. In the same way, we do that spiritually sometimes. We fill ourselves with things that are, they fill up our time and our schedule and our energy. They take our energy out of us, but actually they don't end up producing much. Some of us are good at exercising our thumbs. You know what I'm talking about? You got the... You got the Cell phone out, and you just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. And yeah, we're good at that, right? Thumb exercises. And then you get to the end of that and you've wasted, wow, I didn't realize it was on there like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, two hours. And then I'm like, wait, where did the day go? We're exercising our, uh, our thumbs. We're not exercising our mind and our spirit. And then we wonder why we get discouraged and why we're unproductive and why we're disheartened and why we're feeling so unfruitful and so unproductive. Some of us spend too much time uh, on, on YouTube or TV exercising our eyes. Uh, even sometimes we'll say, well, I'm watching spiritual videos. I'm watching Bible-related YouTube videos. Uh, but let me just suggest this. Uh, we need to give more attention to the pure milk of the word than to the impure substitutes for it. And that goes for anything I write, too. More valuable than anything I read about the Bible is reading the Bible itself. Because when I read the word of God, I know that I'm actually hearing from the Lord. I need to give special attention to studying the scriptures, uh, the way that they were written. This helps us to ensure. We, there's a reason why we read uh, these reading plans we're doing book by book. The idea is that when we read the scriptures in context, 
it helps us to ensure that we we begin to emphasize the things that the Lord is emphasizing. We give the the weight to, to things in Scripture that the Lord gives to it. Jesus would speak of the weightier matters of the law. Discipline yourself to get into the habit, not only of reading God's word, but also of thinking about as you finish your reading, what does this mean for me and how should it change me? Before I think about how it applies to my wife or to my brother or to my sister or to that brother over there who's causing me problems or to my neighbor down the street, I need to think first about how does it apply to me and what does it mean for me and how should it change me? Think about this when it comes to exercise. What are your spiritual exercises? Do you seek to live a life that is uh, most comfortable in as many ways as possible? Or are you willing to exercise by doing things that are uncomfortable for you, but lead you to become a more effective servant of God? Do you only serve in the ways that are most easy for you, in the ways that are most uh, gentle and, and, and fun and exciting for you? Or do you seek to serve even in the ways that are difficult? Do you only seek relationships with those you find it easy to befriend? Or are you willing to stick in relationships even when they get difficult and hard and you're going through hard times? Are you willing to put yourself in situations that give you opportunities to grow because they are difficult for you? Or do you consistently seek the easy way out? Discipline yourself for godliness. That involves exercise. Uh, and again, some of us do all kinds of things to train ourselves in other aspects of life. We need to ask ourselves, what am I doing to train my spirit toward godliness? Let me add to this one other thing. Uh, goals here. How do you do with goals? Uh, that's not something, it's not one of my strengths. Uh, but learning to focus on the goal is a critical part of learning to discipline yourself for godliness. Um, when I was uh, becoming a school teacher, I think I've told some of you this, uh, they taught us to they taught us what they call backwards planning. The idea was you start at where you want your students to be at the end of the year, and then you work your way backwards to build your units, your, le your, um, your, your lesson plans and all of that to make sure that everything is lining up to get them to the goal at the end. Some of us live life not thinking at all about the day when we meet our maker. We just think about today and what I got to do today or what I got to do next week or what I got to do next month. And it's like we're forward planning our life. We're, we're focused on the moment, not on the end. And what we need to do is we need to reverse that. We need to take some time to step back and say, if I have to meet my maker today, am I prepared to give an account for how I've lived? Or would I have deep regrets about how I've used my time, my energy, my possessions and all the things that I've been entrusted with? What have you fixed your hope on? Whatever you fix your hope on, that's what's going to determine what you discipline yourself in. Be careful. Careers are important, an important part of working for the Lord. But be careful in a city like this, that career or money or popularity or social media fame or pleasure doesn't become the thing that you're focused on more than on seeking the Lord. I need to ask myself, is where I'm applying my diligence right now leading me to where I want to be in the end? when life is over. If it's not, then it's time for me to make an immediate change. And I need to make that immediate change now. I know that's redundant, but it's important. An immediate change now. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at the fourth one here. Look at two more, uh, and then we'll wrap up the lesson. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8. 
Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It's a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If I was to summarize the, Paul's second letter to Timothy, this is how I would do it. Paul's second letter to Timothy is a reminder of an invitation to join Paul, for Timothy to join Paul in suffering for the Savior's sake. Over and over and over again, he encourages Timothy, hey, share with me in these sufferings. Don't be ashamed of the sufferings for, suffering for Christ. Share with me. Don't run from opportunities to, to suffer for the Savior's sake. Instead, embrace them. Over and over again, there is an encouragement to Timothy in this letter to suffer with Christ. And this reminds me that there are some pretty heavy demands upon those who would claim Jesus as Lord and want to share in the glory of Christ. Pretty heavy demands. It's not just about coming to church. It's not just about showing up or saying you're a member of, of a group. Uh, it, it, it's much more than that. The life of a disciple is not any different than the life of our rabbi. We are called to, it's pictured even here, as a life of dying and a life of endurance that results in living and reigning with him in the end. And the faithfulness of Jesus includes his promise to deny those who deny him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That's the part of this that we don't like to think as much about. When suffering hardship, it's important for us to remember a few things. Number one, we need to remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead. That is, this world, for those who trust in Christ, does not end in death because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And because he lives, he is enthroned as king forever, being a descendant of David. Notice that he says there, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descendant of David. I think that's a reminder that God promised David that he would set one of his descendants on the throne and he would rule forever. So being a descendant of David should remind us that Jesus is king and that he's reigning on the throne in heaven. So even if I'm enduring hardship, or even if people of God get imprisoned or hurt or even worse, the word of God is not in prison. Jesus is still reigning on the throne. And endurance is important because that is what can lead to eternal glory, both for me and for others. Did you notice this? Notice Paul again in verse 10. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also might obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. When we're suffering hardship, we need to remember this. I know what he endured for my salvation. I know all that he went through and the salvation that I received because of it. So I also join him in enduring hard things and enduring all things so that others might share in that same salvation and glory 
that he has so graciously given to me. All right, part of growing into maturity as a minister of Christ, as a servant of God, part of growing into maturity as a servant of God is this. I no longer think only about my salvation. I learn to think about the salvation of those around me. I'm not just suffering so that I can be saved. I'm learning to embrace suffering so that it could bring about the salvation of others. That means I'll put myself in difficult situations sometimes, knowing that what he endured produced such great result in me. Therefore, I can also join him in enduring all things so that it can produce a similar great result in others. Let me ask you this. Have you joined Paul and have you joined Christ? in suffering for the Savior's sake? Do you run from suffering or do you embrace it, seeking to glorify him? Don't run from opportunities to suffer for the Savior's sake. Uh, Also, don't take your eyes off the promise. One of the reasons why we run from opportunities to suffer is because we forget how this thing ends. And notice in each of these trustworthy statements, he keeps calling us back to God to focus on the future and to focus on the end. If we die, we will live. If we endure, we will reign. Most importantly, if we die, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. Praise God that Jesus is reigning on the throne. And praise God that he's given us an opportunity to die with him so that, he, so that we also might live with him. Don't miss out on this beautiful opportunity. All right, let's look at one more before we end. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. These are the verses that uh, Tony already read for us, um, so I'm not going to read them all. But I want you to notice uh, a couple of things. First note in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, remind them. The things that he was reminding Timothy of he, and Titus, he wanted them to remind others of as well. But notice also that he speaks here about the way we used to be. He says, we also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were not saved by deeds that we did. We were not saved by our deeds, but by his deeds. Look at this verse four. When the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which are done, have done which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Think about this. How is it that we got saved? It wasn't that God looked down and said, man, that's a really good person. I'm going to save that guy. It wasn't that the Lord looked down and said, man, I really love how good and how much good that that those sisters have done in the world. Therefore, I'm going to save them. We were saved not because of what we have done, but because of what he did. It is God's kindness that has saved us. He was kind to us. He loved us. He appeared to us. He saved us. He washed us. He renewed us and poured out his spirit upon us richly. 
He's the one who justifies by his grace. He's the one who makes us his heirs. He's the one who gives us hope of eternal life. Now, why do we need to remember these things? And why do we need to keep speaking confidently about these things? Well, one reason Paul gives is so that we will be able, we will be careful to engage in good deeds. You see, the more I reflect on all the ways that God has demonstrated kindness toward me, the more it manifests through me becoming kind to others. And if you want to learn how to do good deeds, it starts with remembering how kind and loving God has treated you. Remembering how kind and loving the Lord has been towards me is what's going to produce in me a life that is that looks the same. So here, just as a practical uh, thought before we end, um, let me suggest this. Think about today the ways that you see God's kindness being manifested in your life, both past, present, and future. Think about the ways that you see God's kindness being demonstrated toward you. And then look for, look for ways to do the things that God has done for you, for those who are around you. Don't do it for your own glory. Give credit to God for what God has done. Um, and use the good things that God has done for you to therefore turn around and do those same things for others. I'll just add this. For some of us who are doing good, seek to get others involved in those good deeds as well. Remembering that this is a work that we do together to glorify God. It's not something we do alone. Hope this is helpful for you. These reminders are helpful for me. I hope they are also helpful for you as we reflect on the great things that uh, God has done for us and the trustworthy statements that he's given us that will continue to inspire us to serve him. Let's finish with a word of prayer. Holy God, we thank you for uh, your great love, which has been manifested toward us in the cross through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for the kindness that you have poured out upon us uh, through our Savior. And we pray, dear God, uh, that you'll help these uh, these true and faithful sayings to be written on our hearts, that we would uh, remember them, that we would respond to them in a way that glorifies your name. We pray, dear God, that you'll help each one of us to repent of any sin and sorrow, any sin and, and, um, and failures, uh, stumblings, entanglements that we've been involved in that are leading us and drawing us away from you. And I pray, dear God, that you will help us to turn to you uh, and find in you grace, mercy, love, and strength that we may carry out your mission that you called us to on this earth. Lord, help us to fix our hope on you, the living God, our Savior, our King, our Lord. We pray, dear God, that you help us to live with you and to die with you so that one day we might live with you forever, to endure with you so that we might reign with you forever. This is our prayer through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.